Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's guest is Nick Coward. There's a conversation, I think, an unresolved conversation to be had, which has to lead to there being a sport betting right of some description, like there exists in some countries. I think that has to happen so that these proper conversations can be had between a sport to understand what it what it needs to do if it, if it is going to be a betting product. Nick currently chairs UK Athletics and England Golf and several other organisations, both in and beyond sport. He began his career working as a lawyer for the FA and has since held leadership roles at the Premier League and British Horse Racing Authority, amongst many others. And he advises on an array of international rights holders across motorsport, football and a host of different sports. So it's fair to say that he's thought long and hard about how sport works and when it doesn't. This is a conversation about many things, including people's relationship with change, the role of a chairman or an interim CEO, the effectiveness of sports organisations and the day-to-day job of leadership. If you like the podcasts, you'd really like the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter, which covers many of the conversations that we have in the podcast, but also lots of other stuff in between. You can sign up to that via unofficialpartner.com, where you can also delve into the back catalogue of around 130 previous podcast conversations. Here is Nick Coward. Nick Howard, thanks very much for coming on. Did you know your your WhatsApp emoji is an extraordinary likeness? In fact, it, it looks more like you than the photo in WhatsApp looks like you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure it's a compliment, but you know, it's just a, just an observation, I guess. No, well, uh, well, I'm going to take it as a compliment. It helps if you have a mop of grey hair, and there is a there is an emoji which has a mop of grey hair. So there you go. Right. I was wondering where to start with this, because one of the features of your career, obviously, is that, as my mum used to say, you've ain't half been around the houses. And uh, by that, I mean, you've done lots of things in an official capacity, um, you know, in sport. That's not what my mum meant, but uh, that's that's the gist. That's my analogy. Where let's list them, because obviously there's football, FA Premier League, your horse racing in there. But I got you've got UK athletics um, now. Let's let's uh, and golf. Anything else? Yeah. So in reverse, well, I suppose most recent sport, which um, the fewest people perhaps will know about, is the sport of kabaddi. So my current um, my current sporting obsession is the Pro Kabaddi League in India, which has gone from nothing to the second biggest sports property sports league in India in in seven seasons. Um, you know, numbers vary. Let's 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 use 350 million viewers. And I got I've been involved in that since a phone call, which um, I took when I was with the family. We were we were in, at the Olympics in Rio. We are um, you know, uh, love love going to the games and um, happened to be there and got a call from from a guy who I now know to be Anapam Goswami, who's the lead commissioner and some of his team, great team there. And they said, they were effectively told me the story. They are owned by Star, now Disney, um, or majority owned by by Star. Unlike most sports properties, which are, I suppose, a sports property in search of a broadcast proposition, this was a broadcast-owned league that didn't really have any sporting infrastructure, knowledge, or awareness. And so they had been... um, given my name via, via a guy called Nick Wilkinson in Singapore from someone who I used to work with at the Premier League, Paul Molnar, as someone to speak to. Um, 
and they did and we've had an amazing time together so kabaddi is um that's one and i think that's a reasonable start point for all the others so you asked me to list them so i suppose football wise recently as a consultant i've worked with leagues federations in china turkey middle east um spent some time in peru panama namibia mixed bag philippines and also again india um, motorsport here in the UK. Sports-wise now, I'm chairing England Golf, governing body of amateur golf, um, chair UK Athletics um, in um, obviously Olympic and Paralympic year, which I thought would be last year, but I um, still very much hope it'll be this year. Is it going to be this year? I Well, certainly that's our view and that's our preparation. That's so, uh, you know, with, a, with our... Um, our coaching team working with the athletes, our athletes, that's exactly where we're aiming. I mean, that's a, that's a big topic in itself. I also am involved in a company called Sportable that um, Eddie Jones actually most recently has been saying great things about. So we're a, we're a wearable tech business um, creating, um, for the first time, pretty much data insights in rugby um, uh, with a communicating rugby ball, um, which is, is creating huge interest that's very exciting and actually i got away from sport a fair few interests as well including and this is a conversation for another day the world's leading scientific prover of the origin of produce a business called orotain which i am which is endlessly fascinating so i like to keep busy is that about the provenance of food um food yes or and it's um it's the anything in which we can identify origin from the elemental um, trace element and isotopic content of the product. So, for instance, there's a lot of talk at the moment about cotton, for instance, and the provenance of cotton, and that's an area which we we, um, we specialise in. But food, um, uh, minerals, you know, out of the ground, commodities, basically, where people are interested in provenance. That's a business which we're which we're heavily involved in. So that's kind of that's kind of away from your question about some sports, but I think the the um... well, it's my own fault because I keep pushing you off um, into other places. I think it's inevitable given how much you do. It comes back to where it started. I think I um, the experience I had at the time I was with the um, the FA, um, which was ninety six to two thousand and four. I suppose equipped me to be able to deal with a whole lot of stuff, which is you know common to all sports league sports properties there's so many similarities there's there's um there's a number of models which are applied every every nation every sport has its own has its own unique features its own context its own economics its own sports culture tradition law government engagement but working i suppose what what my experience enabled me to do was to work work in all these various different sports in many different countries and well as well and pretty much be a consultant with them, those who I'm consulting with, and also the experience I had. um, There's a recruitment agency called Nolan Partners, Paul Nolan, who I worked with for many years at the FA, and he always said to me I was a chairman way way before um, my time, really because of the experience, particularly at the FA, and that is something I took through as well in my experience in horse racing because we haven't even mentioned that yet because that's, I suppose, the other one which I'm heavily involved, was historically heavily involved with. So the question, given all that, um, is about being 
a chair and you've been an interim CEO a couple of times as well. What is it that people see in you um, that makes them pick up the phone other than being Paul Nolan's mate? Um, what is it that they need and what is it they project onto you that looks like the answer to their their problems? Change. I think the interesting thing about the sports industry or sports business is that um, they're incredibly dynamic. Um, so there's, there is a constant need to evaluate um, where you are as a sport and also in the context of everything that's going on around you in particular. I suppose the experience of racing in particular was this. So that was a job which was um, to come in, recreate a governing body. So um, the racing role in 2006 was be the first chief executive of a new governing body, bringing together a regulatory body in the commercial and governance organisation in horse racing, you know, second biggest spectator sport. Uh, massive industry that had really lost its way, lost its confidence and gone through um, a difficult change process. And that, what they wanted was someone to, to help, you know, that change process in the sport. And that's, that's um, what we did then. And I think that change process is similarly to, for instance, the, the role in athletics the brief there was as interim CEO, which turned within days to becoming, would you, would you become our chairman? As after having appointed our new chief exec, Joanna Coates, who obviously arrived in March last year, is very much that again. It was a, we need someone to stabilise the business and turn it around and get ready for a big change. And I think that's, that's what I've pretty much carried through in, in all of the roles that I've had, whether they've been an exec. Uh, or a non-exec chair or a consultant it's understanding that you you want to bring sports are vast joint ventures between a whole lot of different actors to create to create the sport and then work out how how you want to pull that sport together not just for say for a participation sport but also for a for a commercial proposition, understanding your market or your broadcast property, where are you in terms of racing? It was about where, how can we maximise our value as a betting product? What's you know as a as a as a destination event, as a you know as a big event business, um, and it's to try to pull all those joint venture partners together and create the best approach. And that's, I think, the that's that's the approach and that's why as i bring to all the roles i hope that i hope that's right and it's um you know so far people seem to want (laughs) want me to do it in lots of different sports what's the internal response when you go in as an interim ceo because obviously by definition there's a there's a temporary nature to it is it it feels a bit like being a supply teacher is it and you you go in and you have to stamp down your authority and cowards here there's no mucking about uh, well, I suppose the two I've done it. I've done it when I've stayed at the organisation, so at the FA, um, which is one kind of approach to it, and then the athletics, UK athletics role. Um, when I took that on, that was that was possibly going to be a month or two, possibly um, six, seven months, if depending on when we could recruit a chief exec. And never was it contemplated that I would become chair, which did actually happen. So um, I don't think I would be any different, whatever kind of nature of role, role it is. Um, so, no, you, you go in and you're, you're very much there, um, whether, it's, whether you're 
full time or whatever capacity, you're there to do the job. And I think whether it's being a consultant or a chair or a chief exec or interim chief exec, you're bringing that same kind of approach to doing it, to pull people together, to pull the organisation together. Because often, often you find that these are moments of difficulty or crisis or mess. Um, and you've got people who actually want to, to move on. And it's really just the process of helping all those people involved to, to get through the, the difficulties and then get onto what they really want to do, which is you know, creating success by any way you want to measure it. Okay, let's go back to the FA then. Um, you're a lawyer by by training. Was that the plan? Were you was the initial idea that you were going to be a sort of sports lawyer? Is that how you envisage yourself and your your life as a sports lawyer in the in the sort of classical sense? No, and I don't think then it even existed as a thing. Um, so I started working at a city firm in London called Freshfields and. That business that they had been retained by the FA to assist them through Hillsborough. So that was, and I ended up as a trainee, um, an article clerk in the department, you know. And there was a partner there called Raj Parker, and he he did an awful lot of work um, on the um, the Taylor report, Taylor inquiry, and he had continued to do some work, and he just you know. As these things happen, a few files were thrown on my desk. Um, I think the first ones were relating to Aldershot Town going through an insolvency. And actually, your club, Tottenham, Hotspur, one of the early big cases, and the reason I think ultimately I ended up having having this career um, was there was a big disciplinary case, if you remember it, when when Spurs uh, uh, were found to have breached some irregular payment rules, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, and they were fined. There was a, there was a disciplinary process, and they were thrown out of the FA Cup. Was that the Irving Scholar regime? Yes, yes. And But there was the transition. So by the time the, the proceedings took place, it was in new ownership of Alan Sugar. The, um, the club was deducted. 12 points thrown out of the FA Cup and I think fined £600,000 and then it was appealed and then went to an arbitration and it ended up being a fine of £1.5 million. And that was my first, I suppose, introduction to sport and the law. And during the, during the case, we, had, we Freshfields, had been helping the FA, but also identifying big issues that they had with their rules and their constitution and I think they pretty much said to to Freshfields, well, if if we've got these big problems, help us sort it out. So I was seconded to the FA to to rewrite the constitution, rewrite the rules and all that. Um, Then then went back to private practice. Then then early 1996, got a call. Would you like to join the FA as its first in-house lawyer? To which you have to say yes, really. So my um, my first day was the first of May nineteen ninety six. Euro ninety six was um you know was weeks away. My sister decided to get married on the day of the England Scotland game, so I couldn't I couldn't go. But you know there were those there were those moments, and still one of the I think still the best football I have ever seen the Holland game. Oh yeah, Shearer and Sheringham. 
So uh, FA in 96, who would have been in that office? I'm thinking Jonathan Hill is, is someone that springs to mind. John, well, yeah, Jonathan. So, uh, yeah, um, and now I'm, I'm sure doing, you know, looking at um, what he's got in front of him in Ireland, Republic of Ireland, and um, 25 years on from when I suppose I first, I first met him when he was heading up the commercials with Steve Kernow and um, Helen, now Dickinson, uh, who I think were the, you know, with the, we were the four people who weren't really of the FA at the time. I was the, I was the, the lawyer who'd been seconded in, and they were the Euro 96 commercial team. We spent a lot of time together. This was in Graham Kelly's time as chief exec. So you were sort of seen as muggles, were you, within there? <laughs> I think we were, we were certainly... We was yeah we were certainly we're, I think I can't remember we were in a part of, we were in part of part of Lancaster Gate roughly together which was obviously you know we weren't we weren't the we were the new the new not not you know we were not the traditional FA folk that had been there for um, some time but yeah that was it. it was an incredibly exciting time but Graham Kelly was the chief exec um, people like Pat Smith um, she was the deputy chief Glenn Curtin who was obviously running. Um, uh, year in '96, yeah, and that's when that's when it started. I think my first memory of Graham Kelly, maybe this says an awful lot about about, about where where the organisation as well was at the time. Coming back to this this theme of change, he had this phrase: "I'm I'm not paranoid, but I swear everyone hates me." <laughs> that could be the FA's sort of uh, brand strapline, couldn't it? And that's that's why I mention it really. And it, there was undoubtedly this incredibly exciting time, you know, and the Premier League was pretty new still and this was you know think things were changing and year 96 was such a big moment for people like graham and the fa in terms of of a, of a moving on from you know hillsborough meant everything to these people you know it was it was for obviously for, for a whole lot of people just an enormous moment and you could the, the sense of um, wanting change because of all of that horrific disaster and the systems behind it meant that actually, you know, I arrived at a time when when the, the FA began to start going through this feeling of what well, Premier League, you know, stadium stadium being changed because of huge investment um, assisted by government into changing stadia. Euro '96, Premier League and Sky, and it was just it was a moment of of change. Yeah, change is something that we talk about all the time, isn't it? It's one of just a, a feature of, of modern life and business life. But you've worked in large organisations and organisations where we know it's just so difficult to get things done or to, to make things happen. What have you learned about that process? How do you move it from something being just an idea that everyone talks about to actually something changing fundamentally, things happening? have to assume everyone involved in these in these things wants to do you know they want they want they want the thing in they're involved in to be successful and um so at at a at any moment in time it's that consultancy stuff isn't it asking you what what what, what do you really want and do you think do you think we're achieving it and if you're not achieving it how about trying to think about ways of achieving it and achieving it better? So there's no great, I don't think there's any great magic to it apart from that. Um, and as I was talking about the racing point earlier, I mean, 
had a, going to the end of my time, so I spent about four and a half, five years at horse racing before before going back to football in the Premier League in um, 2011, I think it was. And I had a really fantastic, wonderful letter, uh, you know, unsolicited letter at the time from someone saying, you know, thanks, who I wasn't at all expecting. And what that letter said was... Um, you helped you you helped um, you helped us feel um, confident in that you know that a sport could believe in itself again. Now that doesn't make myself too grand about this because all that that was was myself and it was really you know some like-minded people at the time. And there was Simon Bazalgette at the, the Jockey Club, um, others a um, guy called Rod Street who had been in Northern Racing. Um, you know, people around our board, people generally thinking, right, racing, racing has got, has got so much good going for it, but, but has, has not achieved it. Let's make, let's make the change in order to, to do that. Well, how do, how do we go about that? You, know, you could have made an argument at the time that everything was good. Ownership numbers were record levels, betting levy return record levels, ownership at record levels, but all the metrics were showing you that there was a big, big market pressure coming down the track. And actually that was that was the way in which you could go about getting people together to show, well actually if if we keep doing the same thing, it'll be okay, but it won't be won't be great. But how about if we make these changes, which we did in racing, um, in terms of understanding what people really want from this sport, from 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 ownership, from betting, from a from a day out, what we can do. And through a process and a lot of hard work, a lot of data, a lot of rigor, a lot of, lot, a lot of conversations, people go with the change. You've held leadership positions at the FA and the Premier League. You're general secretary of the Premier League. Um, that's the fault line traditionally, club v country, between those two organisations. How do you align those incentives? It's, I guess it's just trying to work out self-interest, isn't it? That self-interest will always win out. No, no, no but self-interest isn't a bad thing. And so that's the point, really. You create, you create the, you create the, you try to create the best position where self-interest is achieving what everyone thinks is they want to achieve. And again, I'd say the elite play performance plan is a great thing. I wouldn't call it a fault line. And I think that's again one of those one of those overdone points. Um, I, I, I think there's um, again, what what is it? You're, what is it you're trying to achieve in in all these in all these debates as a as an overall system? I think I think if if you start from the position that, um, for instance, there is a there is a governing body, you know, for the use of the term, who can tell everybody what to do when it's not really their business in any sense in any sense of that word, that's not likely to arrive at great outcomes. I don't think. Um, so I, I again, I, I don't think these things are fault lines. Often these can be debates where, if you if you really identify what the issues you want you want to achieve, you know, get, getting the people ultimately who'll deliver the solution heavily involved is going to give you what you want. Yeah, I get it, but you also have, for example, you know, an American owner of a Premier League football team. What's in it for them sending their players off to play internationals for? Um, their representative teams it's it's that's it can get very petty but that's emblematic isn't it of the issue that that trying to 
to marry that up is is very difficult. I can't see how you're going to to align those incentives. Well, I, but again, though, look at look at the look at the history of the last however long it is since the elite player performance planning came in, and the colossal investment by those Premier League clubs, not only in their academies but the entire system, you know, all the way through the football league and their academies as well. The the credible distributions, redistribution as well, and the creation of a quality assurance standard. You know, Jane Purden, who's who's been on with you, she's now got a role chairing that group. It's um that was so I was at the Premier League with Jane and Jane and myself were working together with people like Jed Roddy and obviously the whole Premier League team and the academies. That was a that was a big task for me. I didn't know it when Richard said come back to football, you know, and um, be the general secretary. I didn't know anything about what that meant in terms of elite player performance plan, which then took over large, really large part of my time as general secretary. But creating that and creating a new dialogue between the clubs and the coaches, the England national team coaches, with the player at the centre to get the best possible development pathway for all these players. And you look at the result and then the talent that has come through that system that is creating the excitement, you know, continuing excitement around the England England team at all age ranges. I think that's um I think that is actually proof of the opposite to what to what you might be suggesting, actually. It shows that there can be a, a system change which can create benefits at national team level and club level. What was Richard Scudamore good at? Well, well, running running the Premier League. <laughs> you want an answer to that? Um, so, and I think anyone who's involved, I think to, to turn around your point about um, and your your mum's statement about getting about. I mean, he, he arrived there. Um, it was interesting. I was reflecting on this. Um, so I start, So he arrived at the Football League as chief exec in 1998. I can't remember why I was looking at this, but I had reason to think about the um, the Man United uh, purchase by Sky in 1998. So I found myself um, leading football's submissions to the Monopolies Mergers Commission that Sky should not be permitted to buy Manchester United, which was an interesting place. Um, and because... Uh, this was one of those periods where we were without a chief exec, coming back to your point. So Graham Kelly had gone. We'd set off this process. Uh, a new Football League chief exec arrived. And so it was one of my, I suppose, my early uh, memories of how on earth have I ended up here is you know, sitting in front of the Monopolies Murders Commission with Richard sitting to one side, making the case for the FA and the Football League as to why this should not happen. Obviously, within a, within a year and a half or so, he'd moved on to the Premier League. Um, and then I found myself having a conversation with him, you know, whatever it was, uh, you know, 10 years after that, saying, you know, stop, stop being involved in horses, come back to football. Um, and he only left, what, three years ago, four years ago? So, you know, that was, that's great, great testament to his his time and he was he it's a bit like what i well hopefully what i'm talking about it is constantly about in this incredibly dynamic world understanding what your what what you need to do to pull the people that you're trying to pull together to pull together and that's what he did 
you know, that's what the Premier League is constantly doing. That's what Richard and the team now, obviously, um, that's their task now in this incredibly dynamic marketplace in which, which the Premier League operates on a global level. What was his favourite sort of tactic and lever or sanction? Because it's obviously, we've seen how difficult it is since he's left to, to manage that, um, all those different parties. Herding cats is the cliché. Um, well, no, but I don't know that I would add, add all those two together and, say, and then say how difficult it is since he left. The current team had to deal with the fact that they were themselves in an interim position. Coming back to the theme, one of the themes of this, this conversation, they themselves were in that. Richard Masters himself was in that position. And that's a, that was a difficult position when, particularly when you're looking at the fact, as I say, you're constantly needing to be thinking about the changes that you need to make. And if, if the organisation gets itself into a state where it can't do that, it can't think ahead as much as, because I think to answer your question, one thing that the Premier League was able to do in the focused way that it can, because it is thinking constantly about what's in the best interest of the league, what's in the best interest of the 20 clubs, that focus, which I think is the lesson of the Premier League change itself, focusing on the 20, and literally the 22, not the 92. Focus on that. What's the best for the product? What's the best for the league? What's the best ultimately for the fan, the consumer, the broadcaster as well, and partners? I think the um, what what the league was always able to do was to think ahead. The two years maybe that is necessary to think ahead. The three years even to think right. What do we need to do now to get ourselves into the best possible position for then? I think. That's that's what perhaps the team now weren't getting. You know, they haven't had the luxury of that time because that time was taken by the interim period when the when the organisation was trying to sort out how you know who its leadership was going to be. I'm sure that, and I, I actually I think that was maybe one of the one of the lessons from from um, the big picture moment was maybe that just said that. There were, you know, the, the, there's nothing new in these issues. Um, you know, all the various subject matters are known, whether it be, you know, time in the calendar, economics, money flows, and the rest. Of it. it's, it's all the same stuff. But perhaps what hadn't happened was they were able to be the process when they wanted it to be, in order to get it set and set and sorted in time. And so that was, and I'm, but I'm sure now that. Um, now that they have got the process in line, I think um, you know, consultants are on board and all the work is being done and, you know, people have put their markers down and there's, there's issues out there. So I think that was, I think that's, that they are dealing with the issues. Perhaps the point that they weren't able to do was deal with it in the time that they wanted to, which Richard Scudamore in previous days certainly um, was absolutely clear on. And also, and, and I uh, comes back to that point, identifying ultimately what the majority wants and will support. Do you think it matters um, who owns a league or a tournament or a property? No, I don't believe it does, and I don't believe it has to. And I suppose this is where I, where I come back to my um, the Pro Kabaddi League being owned by Star. Um, the, issues, the issues are no different. Um, you know, there are still franchises, there are still play at clubs in the, in the, in the case of the um, PKL, its franchises, there are still 12 franchises, franchise owners, you know, the players, the officials, 
still need your matches, you still need all your partners. Quite how the fact that you are 70 plus percent owned by a broadcaster and, and now, you know, uh, Disney um, ultimately shouldn't matter, I don't think, in terms of everything you have to do and the way you have to go about it and the people you have to, to, to carry with you. One of the things which I suppose I have, I, I still think about more than probably as healthy and more than most is the relationship between sport and betting, particularly now as we look at the US and what's going on in the US, where, where sports haven't really thought this through yet the current debate about advertising and i don't mean that because that's different i'm talking about the actual relationship between betting sport as a betting product and sport as not because i do think this makes a difference and then and this so again i'll draw an analogy maybe between an analogy between racing and um, a bloke who i know you you thought about a lot paul mcginley um so the, the point here is that racing is a is a is a product for betting you know, it, it, it is it is perfectly designed for it, and that it's very clear about it. And the system knows that, so the sport knows that, jockeys know that, owners know that, um, racecourses own it. Every, everyone knows it. The rules are designed because of that. The system operates to ensure. You know, I think there was um, there was a, I can't remember the race now when John. There was that moment when you know, John Frankham. Pull back. It was, a, was it Peter Scudamore and John Frank? I can't remember. But there was a, basically a moment of great sportsmanship in in racing, which clearly, you know, in the nicest possible way, can't happen because you have to keep riding out for the win. And the sport doesn't, you know, it's designed to stop that. Contrast that, and this is this is something which I still think is something that we have to all work out. Paul McGinley in a Ryder Cup, two thousand and. I don't know eight. I, you, you, you're the uh, you might you might know this. He conceded a putt. You know, it was Europe, Europe were winning. Europe had won. He conceded a long putt. I think it was JJ Henry. Yeah, I think that was in Ireland in two thousand and six. Two thousand six, it could be because that would make sense. It was. Uh, it was. Um, hopefully, it's ringing bells. And he conceded this putt, and punters were furious. You know, basically saying, did this man not know that I had massive amount of money riding on the result? Of course, the answer to which is, no, he didn't. And nor should he have done and nor should he have cared because there's nothing in it for him. Golf, golf is not, has not been, is not a product for betting. If it were, clearly, there would be different rules in place, different motivations, different things going on. Yeah, similar to, um, remember, Ernie Els at a Masters took sort of seven putts on the first green. And I remember him saying afterwards or, you know, a couple of months afterwards, he was asked about it. And he said, well, if if there was betting in play, you would assume that this, I'd been, ta- I'd taken a bung because, you know, it was completely irrational um, and it's very difficult to, to manage. So what what's the solution? How do we make sport and betting work better? See, I'm, I'm a great... I'm a great believer in sport. I mean, sports betting, I don't, you know, I, I spent a lot of time over the years talking to um, lots of organisations around the, this, these issues. And there's, you know, this kind of link that people make in their head between sports betting equals a threat, you know, a threat to integrity, to which the answer, of course, is no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't have to be, be that because, you know, British sport, keep going with football or whatever, or British racing, or, but, you know, British sport has existed at the centre of, since the 1950s, 60s, in the centre of the sports betting world. And, and 
still people will tell you around around the world that 50 years on, British sport still has a colossally high reputation and, and value, you know, Premier League value. There is a lot of value in the fact that it's of unquestioned integrity. So the two don't necessarily follow. You know, the NFL wouldn't have brought all their games to Wembley had they thought that bringing a match to a, to a, to a jurisdiction where there was sports betting was inherently going to corrupt the sport. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. Clearly, those matches have come great success. So I think there's there's a conversation, I think, an unresolved conversation to be had, which um, I think ultimately has to lead has to lead to there being a sport betting right of some description, like there exists in some countries. But I think that has I think that has to happen so that these proper conversations can be had between a sport to understand what it what it needs to do if it if it is going to be a betting product. What is a betting right? Um, if you if you want to offer a bet on my sport, you have to seek for my permission, and we enter into an agreement under which I will give you permission to do so. And there will be a, a basically it's a piece of intellectual property. So the betting brands, um, Labrooks, for example, would have to pay for a betting right in addition to or, or instead of a um, a marketing sponsorship right. Yeah, whether whether they whether they want to sponsor someone is a different issue. But if they want, if a, if someone wanting to offer a bet wants to do so, they would have to have effectively have entered into an agreement with the rights owner for the ability to do so. Does that happen anywhere? Well, well what's an example of a country that has that sort of that sort of system? In France, that happened. Um, Australia has a version of it. Um, you're, you're talking about a question. Of course, one of the difficulties of talking about betting is that for large parts of the world, it is contrary to law. It is contrary to the to the uh, religion and traditions, cultures of, of a great many nations. So it's a very difficult conversation to have. And I remember, so I chaired, back to chairing things, I chaired um, an organisation called the Sports Rights Owners Coalition when it started um, 2004 five for about four or five years itself. And this was basically a coming together of all the big sports organisations in UK, Europe and the world and, you know, so IOC, FIFA, IAAF, World Rugby, International Cricket Council, you know, all, all major sports organisations were part of this, FIFA, UEFA. At our first meeting, it was really interesting. The guy who was there from the IOC said to all of us, I think we need to, you know, sport needs to sort out its view on betting. And you know, this was a very difficult thing for the IOC then to raise because the IOC couldn't it couldn't have a position on betting why not because it was not part of you know again they would their federations wouldn't allow them to because betting you couldn't talk about this thing because the you know to even to even admit its existence was fundamentally wrong and you know many and this is no this is no criticism it's just you know so it's a fact that still then and this is 15 years ago you know if if there was betting in many nations, it was only pool betting, you know, as a as a state as a state pool betting monopoly, um, and even that, you know, was pretty pretty much the exception. So I think, sorry, this is this is back to your point about rules and sources of funding. So I think betting is betting is one, and I think government, I think government is another. So I don't. So my point is, I don't think the fact that it's um, different kinds of capital is necessarily a issue. And the reason I say government, I think, is because Government, government investment um, is another kind of 
key issue, I think, particularly in the UK, we, we're going to have to go through another rethink about it is what, you know, what, what is sport as far as government is concerned? Why, why do we still have this idea that, you know, if the RFU does a successful media rights deal for the professional game, for the England national team, well, we'll have investment in grassroots rugby. But if they don't do it, well, we're not going to have investment in grassroots rugby. I kind of think if sport is a public good, which I think I think it is, well, the, it's a public good which should be funded for all of us. And I think, again, this is something which I think um, the, the way in which the, the idea that government doesn't fund you know, or hasn't maybe to the scale that we would all wish full participation, you know, facilities, and I think crucially coaching. I think there's another, there's another link into this. I think one of the reasons perhaps why in this country coaches don't get the respect and don't have the kind of aren't the four in terms of an awful lot of our um, sports systems is that it is not seen as something which is, you know, every, every, every town will have its sports club and there will be professional coaches who will be there. It is still very much, you know, clubs, Clubs come together, people will become coaches, they'll go on, they'll, they will do badges and they will do qualifications. But I don't think we have that same kind of, I think it, I think there's something which we need to, you know, a further conversation to think about in terms of the funding, which is what you're asking about, and what it will do to the shape of our sport. I think there is a, there is an assessment, you know, maybe a moment to assess, and I think the whole, um, question of support through professional sports has raised this again i think the conversation needs to go further you know is is it professional sports job to fund participation in something which we all believe to be in the public interest uh, to keep us active and so on do you think that should be the case i no i don't actually i kind of and i think this all this idea of um a sport being a vertical you know from top to bottom i think it comes back to this um and back to that governing body type idea of, you know, I, it's hard to see why. Um, I think golf, which is, a, you know, being involved in England golf, in golf has a separation. You know, England golf, which I'm involved in, is, is the amateur golfing body. And, you know, we're, we're of our clubs for our 640,000 member golfers and hopefully all the other golfers. But, you know, there's no... That's not. We're not connected to the to the PGA European Tour. You know, there is the RNA, of course, which is that's a governing body of amateur golf, which just happens to run one event of major, you know, massive significance in the sport. But I don't see that there's a you know there isn't there isn't you know we are a sport held apart, if you like. Um, I think, again, models like the US, you know, if you look at the way in which US sport is organised, I think that's also, you know, an interesting interesting analogy there across where there isn't this idea of one great big vertical where if, you know, it's it's the job of the people selling the rights at the top to fund everything that's going on in the sport. So, yeah, I think there's, there needs to be a question about that and another look at that. Yeah, that's interesting because the vertical or the, you know, the pyramid story um that feels like uh i mean it's regularly put forward as a as a sort of beguilingly simple solution isn't it to a to a problem which is quite very complex and people like clean lines they like they were the scudamore or an eccleston figure 
at the top and straight lines from top to bottom, from grassroots to elite. That that just feels such a logical solution and, and the vertical element to that where each sport is separate, again, is is part and parcel of that that whole idea or way of thinking about how sport is organised. There's, there's, there's an F1 Premier League analogy, though, there. These were, these were fantastic um, sports entertainment products, you know, f- phenomenally successful um, and creating great interest, great moments, you know, fandom, on, you know, which is hugely precious to all of us, you know, that's a big part of my life and, I, um, and yours too. But that's very different. As a, as a thing to to creating creating activity participation you know in in a, in a in a sport or in any sport or just in physical activity across the nation so i don't i don't buy this idea that, that you know this one the thing you were just putting you know one person to do it all i think actually the answer is back to my previous point no that's the actual that's the worst way to approach this look at these issues of working out what it is that you want to do and perhaps what, what others would describe as organisational complexity shouldn't be seen as that, but actually the best way of doing the job that you all want doing. And I think getting people to work together under a kind of clear, this is my job, this is your job, let's do our jobs and let's hold each other to account for our jobs is actually a much, you know, that's maybe something which certainly the um, being involved in athletics now Athletics is, you know, I, I would see us as being, if you're going to draw an analogy with football, you know, kind of athletics is in a, is in a um, going to be in a growth stage. You know, we're we're we've, we've, we're sorting stuff out, um, which is very much along those lines. Let's not have this idea that one organisation can and should do everything and tell it tell everyone else what to do, which is perhaps where it was. No. Let's do the hard work of actually working out what we all need to be doing. Who's the best person to do it? And then working out what, what between ourselves, what the measures are and the metrics, and then hold each other to account for it, which is what I think successful football or other sporting models do. Bundesliga, for instance, I think Germany is always given as an example where the federation runs the stuff and, and, and therefore is a model um, for those who would advocate a similar view here. But what it forgets is that the Bundesliga... And the clubs, the big clubs themselves, are so heavily and closely involved in that in the federation that it's actually the same thing as what people here are trying to unpick and undo. In my view, I think actually there's an understanding that federation has got particular tasks to do, do them. League has got particular tasks to do, do them. Let's work out how we're going to sort this stuff out together between us, and then make the whole better. And back to my point. That doesn't necessarily mean that one has to fund the other. Okay, let's talk about um, athletics. Obviously, you're chair of UK Athletics. Um, we're in the middle of a of a, a running boom every Saturday morning. The parks are full, and that's driven by park run to a great extent. Um, what are the lessons of it? Do you do you look at park run and, and wonder what it means for the sort of traditional governing body model? Well, you're right. Yeah, but in- Park run great success. I mean, mass mass participation events. Um, I think, and you don't have to look at park run. You can look at cycling and and many many others as well. I think that's um, a different proposition to track and field, for instance, as people would describe it in terms of what um, 
you know what what we are track and field though includes running clearly and running is a massive growth and um, certainly it's our ambition to this is uk athletics it's our ambition together with the the home federations who we we are working closely with to take that that great success of that park running and effectively giving people what they want in terms of how they want to enjoy their their running and to take that same that same attention to what people want to do with their time and turn it to the advantage of um, all the disciplines of track and field because I think one of the things which athletics and para athletics as well para you know because I think people can forget in the context of Tokyo, for instance, a lot of questions are asked about the Olympics. Very few people ask about the Paralympics. But between between all the disciplines that um, we have to offer, there's something in there's something in this sport for absolutely everyone, and it is fundamental. You know, it's running, it's throwing, it's it's jumping, um, and our our you know, this is why I'm saying kind of get involved in the investment from the ground because, you know, we, we are creating a plan for for growth here is to create that same kind of passion and engagement that Parkrun has managed to tap into. Well, and, and as many distance running generally, yeah, marathon, the, the marathon phenomenon, you can, you can, people can look at the marathon phenomenon and say, you know, isn't this a massive shame? This is wrong. We should be, we should be stopping, you know, not stopping it, but, you know, how can this be? It feels a little bit like football and Sunday football, or more importantly, you know, football and you know, small-sided football. You know, um, leagues that have grown exponentially. Um, when I was at the FA, there was a very strong move from, for instance, county organisations that this should be stopped because this wasn't football. But clearly, that wasn't the right approach. The right approach was no, no. This is people saying they want to play their football differently. Let's go with that because it is all. You know, it's participation in the sport. Let's 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 go with that. Let's let's enable it. And I think the same is going to be true for athletics. So we can learn. I think those those many lessons in golf. We're doing the same. Actually, I think um, it's all about connection. It's all about engagement. It's all about giving ultimately people what they want in terms of their active participation. Yeah, it's interesting. The the sort of governing body relationship with innovation um i guess from the outside I, mean, I remember talking to david bedford on this podcast and asking whether or not parkrun could have come from within a traditional governing body he said absolutely not it has to come from outside um and i mean there's there's all sorts of stuff going on you know for example i live in brighton and we you know there's a wild swimming um sort of uh, craze going on that hasn't got much to do with british swimming but i guess there's an incentive when you're looking at government money to take credit for that activity and to, and to, to the, make the most of that opportunity. Well, I'll give you an analogy. So in golf, we know there are 635,000 member golfers and they're very important to us as England golf. We're a members organization ultimately, but we know that there are anything from one and a half to 2 million people who regularly play golf who aren't members, but they're not, they're not not golfers. <laughs> they are still golfers. They're just not participating as members. But do you get credit for that? I guess the question is, is the way the sport is funded, it, it means that there needs to be some attribution from that activity back to the governing bodies for the, for the process to work, doesn't it? 
we want them to play golf. We want them to, to swim, whether it's, you know, in the, in the ocean at Brighton or, or, Brighton or Ramsgate or ever. And we want them to swim and we want them to run. Yeah, but they're doing it in all the wrong places, Nick. They're not obeying. They're doing, they're doing what they want. They need, to, they need to get in line, don't they? And I guess this brings us back to verticals and whether or not the, that's the right way of, of organising sport. Well, no, but, and, that's, and that's, again, to help it and enable it and move with it. The fact that it's not being done in the way that has been done previously shouldn't be, shouldn't be a surprise to many people, should it? I mean, because, and that's, again, the nature of what I was saying earlier on. It's the way in which stuff we're involved in changes fast. And so it shouldn't surprise us that it, it changes fast. And then actually, it's not a question of um, saying, isn't it a shame? Back to racing, isn't it? You can't say, isn't it a shame that people don't get how fantastic going racing is? Actually, what you do is you understand what will make people go racing and get involved and then change accordingly. So I think the same same must apply for, for golf. Look, I mean, golf ha- had an amazing 2020. If you'd have asked us, you know, keeping going with this, if you'd asked us in, in, in March, April, did we think we would? Um, not at the time, as, as golf courses like much of the country had absolutely closed down. But we added twenty five to 30,000 members you know, post-lockdown. Participation levels went up massively because actually we were able to provide something that people wanted and wanted to enjoy because actually from a physical Activity and you know mental health, whatever reason you want to subscribe to, subscribe to it. People wanted to play, so what we what we were what we were offering as a game as a sport was 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 really wanted, um, and I think the same. Um, you know, we, we went out to people, you know, golf clubs because we're able to operate through the eighteen hundred and fifty uh, up to two thousand places that people can play and. Um, practice we can actually say to people we're open for business and whatever you know if you want to get involved in this here we are please please come and I think that's a similar message for every 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 sport every every activity that we're engaged in you know we've, we've got to constantly look at what do people want how can we change to make it how to make you know to make the thing which what we're involved in which we think is fantastic accessible to people so that they'll get excited about it as well if it if it's if the current way that we're doing it is turning people off, then the message isn't it's their fault. The message is, well, we should change, shouldn't we? And I think I think that's that's bringing it full circle. That's pretty much it. And I think that's um, that is the roles of any anybody, whether you call them out. I, don't, I think it's wrong to to say governing body and then you know put them in a box and put them you know kind of they'll never change. They're they're kind of put them on the naughty step that's just not right i think your question to dave though is more about um you know are there benefits in looking at these to have for instance kind of a commercial motivation or a different way of thinking about things and the answer that's gonna be yes of course it is always it's the culture question though isn't it that's what he was he was really getting at is that unless you know innovation is always um it's easier to do it outside of, of organisations where you wait, you know, if you're waking up every morning at a governing body, you're, you're not thinking about how to change and disrupt and, and, and bring new things. You, you're, you're just trying to get the job done by the end of the day. 
I think, well, I think cultural, I think there's another interesting question which sports have got to think about themselves, which is, you know, still still this back to, and it's still back to the vertical point and maybe the, the seed of what you're talking about in terms of governing bodies, think, governing bodies which are still substantially and and where would be we where would we all be without them? Volunteers, but volunteer hierarchies can obviously create difficulties in terms of creating the necessary diversity of thinking and approach and mindset that maybe you need to have in order to enable yourself fully to to get involved in thinking about the stuff you need to think about. And you know, whether it's England golf or UK athletics now, absolutely we recognise that. And that's why we've got you know, got to constantly think about have we got the right people around the board? I mean, you'll often find that the age difference between a commercially motivated organization and, for instance, uh, a governing body which has got a hierarchical view where seniority, I suppose, counts in terms of you know, someone arriving at a board as opposed to different. I think that's a factor. Um, so maybe you can't, you can't necessarily have that kind of nimble thinking and approach you know, organ, all organizations need to think about that you know bring it back to the premier league i think um and certainly uk athletics um, are constantly making executive changes you know talked about it but right at the beginning you know part of the reason why you move on from jobs as executive jobs is actually you recognize that i've done this two or three times now i think it's time that, you know i shouldn't i shouldn't do this again Maybe it's time to, to you know, move on to somewhere else where I'm not thinking about the same stuff again and get some different thinking into this organisation. And I think governing bodies, I think there's going to be a big question coming up in the years as to how do volunteer hierarchy structures really achieve the necessary diversity in order to do the best job for the sport. Okay, so um, this is a question I ask reasonably often these days, but... Um... We are in a sort of febrile environment and it's move fast, break things. The, the language of Silicon Valley has, has entered the sports business. And before we break everything and change everything, what's worth conserving? What's, pre- what's worth preserving? I think ultimately the thing we love will stay the same. Um, what I mean by that, um, just to, to draw a number of references, I suppose, the... Um, when you're making, when you're looking at the the necessary changes that we've been talking about, so the big one I mentioned right at the beginning was the creation of the Pro Kabaddi League. There had never been a professional league in in India, um, and it's not just India that plays it. You know, Iran are the current um, uh, champions. South Korea second. India came third in the most recent international tournament. So, which you know. You don't have to sell Kabaddi to me, uh, uh, Nick. I I was in that sort of generation. It was on Saturday morning, Channel 4. Loved it. It's a great game. I didn't have a clue what was going on, but uh, yeah, great game. Well, it's fantastic. I, I will go on about it for a long time, I hope. Um, you know, it's incredibly exciting. And um, but the point here is the sport The sport um, had never been brought to the attention of a, of a, of a broadcast audience. It was, it was, it's essentially the same sport as is played on the dirt all around the, all around the country, but taken indoors and onto a mat um, into a more of an environment that you recognize from watching an NBA, for instance. 
but it's still the same sport. And suddenly, though, here is a here is a phenomenally exciting, interesting, which grips the nation, you know, for pretty much 13, 14 weeks in the year in the season, India's longest season. So you could see that as a massive change. On the other hand, you could see it as actually just being not that much of a change at all. And it's, you know, something which which just needed to be um, represented. And I always think this is an interesting one about the Premier League. Um, so when the Premier League was created, what actually changed? It was the same teams in the same stadium playing the same thing. Um, I think two things changed, one following on from the other. Organisationally, it changed. So instead of being 92 people who were involved in the decision-making, 22 and then 20 were. And 20 were able to create a focused business with, a, with, an, an, a, with an executive team that knew exactly what their job was and were told to go on and go off and do it and has done it brilliantly ever since. Um, and in doing that, they recognised that actually there was huge value for the whole system um, in making making this making this incredible league more accessible to broadcast audience. And that was obviously you had Greg Dyke on here a while ago. You know, you've had others talking about it. And so, really, what changed? The football itself didn't, in many ways. But what changed was the focus, the um, the way in which people understood what their job was and went off and did it. Um, and I think that often seems to be the change that really happens. So I don't subscribe to the break it all, break it all up. If breaking it all up is the thing which is really loved by the fans. Breaking it up in terms of rethinking the delivery, the decision making. You know, are, are we have we got the best talent? Absolutely focused on doing the best job. Is everyone aligned? All that stuff. Yes, I can understand why you constantly have to think about that. Is the market shifting? Is the market shifting in this direction? What does that mean? You know, t- you know, if we want people in Southeast Asia to understand, to really get into our product, do we want to have our games at the t- times we've always played them? Or shall we spread the timings of our games so that this new audience can enjoy it? I remember a debate, maybe this is the last, you know, just an example of, you know, you have to take views as to what you think is important. I had a debate once with the then chief exec of um, Barcelona in relation to, you know, his view of what was important to Barcelona, what his view was that it was very important that families come together and go to the game on a Sunday evening, say, for instance, and that was it. That was the most important thing. And no, no, we do not want to change the times of our of our games. And that, you know, comparing it to what the Premier League had decided to do, for instance, in terms of its the changes it wanted to make to achieve its goals. One wasn't right, one wasn't wrong. But these were choices that, you know, you had to make. Ultimately, I guess, Barcelona, like others, and it's, this is the idea of change, took a decision, well, you know what, that, that is still precious and important to us. But if we make the following changes here also, not only can we have this audience really enjoying what they've always enjoyed, but we can also bring ourselves to the attention of a new audience as well, which ultimately will, will create you know, greater fascination in our product, greater investment, and therefore we all, we all hope um, an even better league um, um, and, you know, property that people can enjoy. So I think that's, you know, that's what change is about.
it's not about smashing it all up. It's about rethinking through all those those different um, ways in which you can give the fans what they want. That is never going to catch on. That's a that's a radical idea. Thank you, Nick, for your time. Really appreciated that. Very broad, very deep conversation, but uh, loved every minute of it. Thanks a lot. 